Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Our message this morning, continuing in our Advent series and also the beginning of our series on the Gospel of Matthew, will come from Matthew chapter 2. This morning we will be considering Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So let's turn now to this Advent passage. This is the Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Let us pray. Great God and Father, We pray that you would add now your Holy Spirit to bring us these well-known events afresh and anew, that their significance and their truth and their power would be part of us and surround us, that we would be to the praise of the glory of your grace and to the testimony of Christ the King, for we pray in his name, amen. Well, in this passage, we find, as we often do in the Gospels, a recounting of innocent-looking events, even what we might call quaint events. That's the way we tend to see it today, very quaint. Uh, Mary and the baby and the manger. Um, But these innocent-looking events were actually not innocent at all at the time. And that can be seen by the fact that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 3, Herod and Jerusalem were right to be troubled, for through these innocent-looking events, the newborn king was beginning to make his counterclaim to the kingdoms of this world, represented by Herod, and also his counterclaims to a spiritually barren Jerusalem, a spiritually barren covenant people represented by the religious leaders. And so we should give 
attention to these events. But as we begin, I want to first give attention to two aspects of this story that have captured people's imagination and have been the subject of much speculation down through the centuries. And those two topics are the Magi and the Star of Bethlehem. The text tells us very little about the Magi. They may well have come from the Persian Empire uh, to the east of Jerusalem. Persia had a governing body known as the Magistanis, which was divided into two houses, the Magoi, or the powerful ones, and the Sophoi, or the wise ones. And the Magoi was the upper house and was comprised of the nobility, in other words, the kingmakers of the Persian Empire. And there's a primitive painting of the Magi on the walls of one of the catacombs of Rome where early Christians worship. And if this painting is accurate, then there were actually quite a few Magi who came to see the newborn king, not just three, as we often sing about in our songs. And they were accompanied by a large entourage of soldiers, as you would expect um, aristocrats to be. Whatever the case, the Magi were very important because they were important enough that Herod, who was an absolute uh, master of power politics, Jesus called him a fox, he was a master of power politics, and these men were important enough that he granted them an audience and took seriously their claims of a newborn king. Now, the star of Bethlehem, as it is uh, called, is what led these magis to come to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem to see the newborn king. And there's been much uh, storytelling and singing and hypothesizing about the star of Bethlehem. One of the most well-known hypotheses is that the star of Bethlehem was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the constellation of Pisces, which would have looked like a giant star on the horizon. And there was, in fact, such a conjunction at the time, and ancient astrology held Jupiter to be the planet of kings, Saturn to be the protector of Israel, and Pisces to be the sign of Palestine. But as intriguing as that theory may be, we must be governed by what our text tells us. And it tells us some very unusual things about this star. For example, when the Magi left Herod, it says that the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. So this was no ordinary star. It led the Magi down a road and hovered over a particular house. Now, astral bodies, such as stars are, are thousands of times bigger than the Earth. And they cannot lead somebody down a road nor hover over a particular house because they hover over all our houses at one time. Further, the star was apparently visible to the Magi, but not to other people. Otherwise, Herod could have simply followed the star himself or sent agents to follow the star. And other residents of Jerusalem and Bethlehem could have done the same thing. If the star was visible to all, it seems there would have been quite a crowd at Joseph's and Mary's house. 
The only scripture phenomena that fits all the data is what is called in the Hebrew the Shekinah, and that is what we see in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's called a pillar of flour, sometimes it's called a cloud of fire. We have it appearing to Moses in a burning bush, that is a bush that is a flame but is not being consumed by the flame. And in this regard, we have to remember that the word for star could be used of really any bright light that was in the sky. And the Shekinah also fits the context and the typology of this passage. Now, we've just been told that the child, in, the, in chapter 1, we were told, verse 23, the child will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the Shekinah was, in the Old Testament, how God manifested his presence. In Exodus 13, we're told that God went before the Israelites by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and so to go before them by day and by night. In Exodus chapter 3, we're told that uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, but the bush was not consumed. In Exodus chapter 14, we're told that the angel of God went before the camp of Israel and moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them, so it became between the camps of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. It was a cloud of darkness to the one, and it was a cloud of light to the other. So we have this phenomena. This is how God manifests his presence. When the tabernacle is first constructed according to God's instructions and is completed and it's dedicated as God has specified, how does God manifest his presence in the tabernacle? The cloud of fire, the pillar of fire comes and inhabits the uh, tabernacle. And so this is how God manifested his presence in the Old Testament. This would have been very well known to Jews. Well, now we have the Shekinah standing above where the young child was, we're told in chapter 2, verse 9, indicating not only Jesus' location, but also truly Emmanuel, that God is with us. The Shekinah above Joseph and Mary's house indicated that the new covenant was dawning, for God had promised that he would create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion the flaming fire by night for a glory and a covering in Isaiah chapter 4. This is one of his great promises of the effects of the new covenant, that this Shekinah cloud, the flaming fire, the flaming uh, pillar of fire that inhabited the tabernacle was going to be upon every dwelling place in Zion, a flaming fire by night for a glory and a covering that God's presence is going to go from being simply in a building to being upon every dwelling of his people. And we see the herald of this. We see the beginning of this when the Shekinah goes before the Magi and dwells upon uh, the dwelling place of Joseph and Mary where the young child is. And here we really begin to see that these events were not at all so innocent at the time. There was, they were charged with political intrigue and so forth. And they were deeply threatening. They were deeply threatening to Jerusalem's political and religious establishment. The Magi's visit to Jerusalem had a reason of its own in God's plan.
for the visit was not necessary for the Magi to find the newborn king. Think about it. The star had led them to the child just as it led them to Judea in the first place. So the star leads them to Judea, leads them to Jerusalem, and then apparently the star disappears. Later on, the star reappears and leads them to the house. Now, had the star led them directly to the house without disappearing, they never would have had occasion to meet Herod. But God in His providence causes the star to disappear in, in, in between, so the Magi enter Jerusalem naturally assuming that the one born king of the Jews would be found at the palace of Herod, the Rome-appointed king of the Jews. In God's plan, the purpose of the visit was not really to inquire about the king, but to announce the king to Jerusalem and her leaders, for that is the effect of the Magi's visit. So the situation is heavy with irony. The king, the son of David, is not born in Jerusalem, the royal city of David, but in Bethlehem, a small village that David lived in when he was a lowly shepherd. Jerusalem, who knows the scriptures so well and who is supposedly longing and waiting for the Messiah, misses his birth altogether and must be sent a living telegram. They know the scriptures so well that they can tell Herod that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem and they quote the prophetic passage. They're supposedly waiting for the Messiah and they have to get a living telegram from Gentile rulers. Jerusalem, so near to Bethlehem, does not worship her king, but Gentile rulers from so far away do. The Gentile magi want to worship the newborn king, while the religious leaders of Jerusalem are nonchalant, and Herod wants to kill him. God is signaling what Jesus will later pronounce, that Israel is barren and the kingdom will be taken from her and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, which shall consist of Jews and Gentiles alike. Now the events become even more threatening to Jerusalem and her leaders when the Magi leave Herod. The Shekinah reappears and leads the Magi to Bethlehem and stands over where the young child was. In the Old Testament, we've already noted, the Shekinah filled the temple. And thus, the temple was God with us in the Old Testament. The temple was Emmanuel. The temple is where you went to be in the presence of God. The temple was where God met with man, where heaven and earth were joined, where one worshipped God and renewed covenant with him. The temple, thus, in the Old Testament, was the center of the world. Whether Gentiles or, or, or others knew this or not did not change the fact. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that it is always God's presence in His temple and His people's reaction to Him and their worship of Him that is truly determining the, world, the events of world affairs. It was never Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh or any other great ruler of the day truly determining uh, world events, but rather the presence of God in his temple and how his people were responding to him and the light that they were bearing 
to the world. So truly, the temple was the center of the world, and God's people came to Jerusalem at least three times a year for great feasts. The people were forbidden to offer sacrifices anywhere else. They had to bring their sacrifices to the temple in Jerusalem. And now the Shekinah glory that dwelled in the temple of the Old Testament is leading worshipers away from the temple, away from Jerusalem, to a small child in a tiny village. The Magi worshipped God, not by worshipping at the temple, but by worshipping Jesus. The message is unmistakable. Jesus has replaced the temple. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is where God meets with man. Jesus is where heaven and earth are joined. Jesus is where one worships God. Jesus is where one renews covenant with him. Jesus is the temple. As the New Testament concludes in Revelation chapter 21, when John sees the vision of the new and heavenly Jerusalem, who is identif- which is very expressly identified as being uh, the people of God, the bride of Christ. The heavenly Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, according to Revelations. It is not a literal, it's not a cube that floats around in the sky uh, with literal streets and trees and so forth. It is a typological picture of the beauty of God's people, of, of his bride. And we're told that in the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, John says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. It is a place where kings of the nations can come to bring their glory and honor to the Lord. It is a description of you. It's a description of God's people. So we see that our application is really the theme, and that is Jesus himself. Jesus is the center of the world. He's not simply the center of a particular religion, or of a certain kind of spiritual experience. He's not the center of a particular ethical code. Jesus is the center of all things. And we see that the word about Jesus goes out immediately to all sorts of people. It goes out to Herod. It goes out to priests and scribes, theologians, religious professors. It goes out to Gentile rulers. It goes out to shepherds in the field who were the lowliest of the Jewish society of the time. In fact, um, shepherds often were disqualified from testifying in judicial proceedings because of the general uh, low reputation that they held. But the word of Jesus and the announcement of Jesus, the announcement of Emmanuel, of God with us, of here is where heaven and earth meet, here is the center of the world, here is the center of all things. This child in Bethlehem, it goes out to all people. 
Thus, all must deal with Jesus. All must deal with Jesus, for the light has come into the world. Now, we see immediately two responses to Jesus. We see bowing down. We see that from great and lowly alike. We see these great Gentile rulers travel so far, bring gifts, come in and bow down before this child. It's not, they were not giving up their authority. They were not giving up their positions. They were acknowledging that this child, by God's decree, by God's presence in him, was the king over all kings. We also see the same response from shepherds who came. We see them worshiping the Lord Jesus. Herod himself understood that, that this is what's called for. Herod, not for a minute, thought that the appropriate response to Jesus was to treasure a certain private religious experience or a new ethical uh, code or a new example. He understood. He said to the Magi, he said, tell me when you find him so that I may come and worship him too. He understood why the Magi were there. He understood what this claim was if this one is born the king of the Jews. For him to be the Messiah, the king of the Jews, is for him to be king of kings and lord of lords over all the world. So we see bowing down by some, both little and great alike. And then we have the other response, which is standing over. Two responses, bowing down or standing over. We see Herod seek to stand over uh, the newborn king, which means he will not submit himself to be judged by this king. He will rather judge this king. And in seeking to judge this king, Herod will judge himself. He wants to kill this king. Worship or putting to death always end up to be ultimately the manifestations of this, either receiving what the Bible calls receiving to all those who received him. He gave the power to become the sons of God. Receiving means worshiping. Receiving means bowing down. Receiving means acknowledging that he is over us. Acknowledging that God has given all power and authority into his hands. Acknowledging that God the Father has committed all judgment before him. Acknowledging that on the last day when we stand before the great throne, it will be Jesus who is seated on the throne. The New Testament makes that clear. It takes the passage from Isaiah, where God in the Old Testament says, I am God alone, and to me every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that I am Lord. And he's not talking about necessary people bowing down to the point of a gun. He's talking about a transformed people, those who are gladly confessing him and bowing down, and then those who refuse, who are then judgment is brought upon them. But that famous passage in Isaiah, which God says, I am God alone, to me every knee will bow, to me every tongue will confess that I am Lord, that is applied to Jesus Christ in the New Testament in two places. It is applied by Paul in Romans 14, that Jesus, that he, the judgment seat of Christ, the great and final judgment, and it's also applied to him by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, when he says that because Christ laid aside his divine privileges and became one of us and was obedient and humbled himself to God the Father to the point of taking our sins upon him 
and dying the death of a Roman cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and decreed that to him, to Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. This is another way of saying that God who was in the pillar of fire in the Old Testament, leading his people out in the Exodus, God who appeared to Noah, God who appeared to Moses, God who inhabited the temple through the Shekinah glory is Jesus. Jesus before he became a man. It is the eternal son of God who was always appearing. If you think about it, he is the one who was with Adam and Eve in the garden the eternal Son of God, the Word, who was always wording the Trinity. He was the one who was there. When Adam and Eve came under the curse due to their sin and were expelled from the garden, we have who was the one who makes the promise to them that the seed of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. That is the eternal Son of God. That's the pre-incarnate Jesus who is speaking with them, which means what? Who else has left the garden when Adam and Eve were put out? Jesus? God the Son? How is he speaking to them? How is he promising them? He doesn't leave mankind to go into exile. He goes into exile with us. And ultimately, he comes among us as Jesus, fully man and fully God that he may take our plight upon him, that he may bring us back. And so everyone must deal with Jesus, not just individuals, rulers, rich, powerful. All must deal with Jesus. And we must either bow down, receive him as our king, receive him as our judge, in which case he also becomes our savior. He pardons our treason with his own blood. The king against whom we have committed treason pardons our treason with his blood, for he has died for our treason. Or people seek to stand over, and they themselves end up being condemned. Jesus talked about this phenomenon because our world is is in great rebellion against this. Our world says that this is a great restricting of the light. If you're saying that Christ alone is the way that we can come to the Father, if He's the only mediator between God and man, if He's the only way to eternal life, if He's the only way to be restored to the Garden of Eden, if He's the only way to be restored to God, then that is a great restricting of light. It is a great exclusivity excluding people. But it's not a restricting of light. It's a concentrating of the light. It is a making full of the light. G.K. Chesterton once commented on this uh, tendency of mankind to be offended at the exclusivity of Christ and of the gospel. And he said, it's like standing before the Garden of Eden and having the entrance into it open wide before you and then complaining that you don't have a hundred different ways in. The way in is right before every person. It stands right before them through Christ, wide open. And we stand outside and are offended 
that we don't have a hundred different ways in. Jesus talked about this phenomena in his famous conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He told Nicodemus, he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus explained, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God sent the light into the world. God sent Christ into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. But then immediately Jesus starts talking about condemnation. Even though God sent his son into the world to save the world, the coming of the son into the world results not only in salvation, it also results in condemnation for some. And Jesus explains why. He said, this is the condemnation. It's not the purpose of God of sending his son into the world. The condemnation is this, that light has come into the world, but that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He said, that's the problem. The problem is not that the light has been so restricted. That's not the problem. The problem is, is that men in their natural state love darkness rather than light. We often have posed that if Jesus is the only way, if he is the light, if he is the only place where God meets with man, if he's the only mediator, then what about people who have never heard about Jesus? Well, we have to remember what Jesus is telling us in John. It says that he, as the eternal word, is the light which lightens everyone coming into the world. Every person who has ever lived in the history of the world and every person on the face of the earth to today has been given some light by God. Some more, some less. The question is, again, what do they do with the light that God has given them? Do they respond to that light? Do they bow down to that light? Do they come to that light? In that case, God in his providence will always give them more light. If they respond to the light that they have, even if it's only a simple candle, one candle, if they respond to that light, God in his providence will make sure that they get more light and more light and more light. And he will bring them word about Christ. He will bring them the knowledge of Christ. But Jesus said that's not the problem. It's not a problem having to do with the amount of light. The problem, Jesus says, is that men love darkness. And so the, the, on the final day of judgment, Paul says, as we stand before Christ, everybody's conscience will either condemn them or excuse them on the last day. When they are judged, says Paul, according to my gospel, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We won't have to look for outside evidence for any person who stands before Christ because every heart will be laid bare. And it doesn't mean we're all sitting around, you know, like this is a public thing, looking, looking on. But before Christ, our heart is going to be laid bare, which means every mouth will be shut. We will have nothing to say because those who have turned to the light by God's grace, those who have embraced Christ, that will be the defining truth of their life. But those who have not, 
it is going to be clear all the little ways in which God gave them light, all the little ways in which they suppressed the light, as Paul says in Romans 1, suppressed the truth, turned away from the truth, shut it out of their mind, blocked off the light that they had. All of those little subtle games that people play in their minds and all the little tricks, all of those are going to be laid bare and every mouth will be shut. So the issue is not an amount of light issue. The issue is that men love darkness rather than light, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Every man must deal with Jesus. It says in Hebrews that God, who in times past, spoke through the prophets to the fathers in many times and in many ways, has in these last days spoken to us through his Son. All the bits and pieces of light that were out there, God has now made full. The Son, it says in Hebrews, is the exact representation of God's nature and is the radiance of God's glory. There is no light that is not in Christ. All the light that is, is there. He is indeed God with us. It goes on to say that He is the one through whom God made the worlds. And it says that He is the one through whom, who upholds the whole creation by the word of His power. This one who made all things, who sustains all things, is the one who has come to be with us in Jesus. And then it goes on to say that this one, when He purged our sins, not by offering some animal, but by offering himself, when he purged our sins, by offering himself, he sat down of the right hand of the majesty on power. And he has become the heir of all things. Everyone must deal with the newborn king. Everyone must deal with Jesus. Great and small alike. This is also true for us, for we see the announcement of Jesus came to those who were also in the covenant community. There were some who received him, there were some who said, we will not have this man to be Lord over us. There were those in the covenant community who worshipped him when he was born, there were those who tried to kill him when he was born. There were those when he became a man who worshipped him, and there were those who when he was a full-grown man said, kill him. These are all different ways of people trying to put Jesus in his place. And still today, there are many like Herod who are glad to deal with Jesus as long as Jesus knows his place. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus' place is at the right hand of God over all things, the center of the world, the center of all life. And therefore, whatever is not based on Christ ends up falling apart. Whatever is not based on Christ in our personal lives will end up falling apart. Whatever is not based on Christ in our marriages and in our families over time will fall apart. And whatever is not based on Christ in the lives of nations and empires will ultimately fall, across, fall apart. We see religious leaders in this story who are, in one sense, immersed in God's Word. They know God's Word, chapter and verse. Herod asks a question. 
Very specific question. Where's the Messiah going to be born? They quote chapter and verse. They tell him. And yet somehow their knowledge of God's word, somehow their experience as part of the covenant people had become twisted. Something had gone wrong because they're not bowing down before the newborn king. And they will end up in the end being the very ones who are twisting the arms of the Gentile rulers to have him crucified. Jesus said to the church, I am the vine, you are the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. We can't even believe apart from Christ. We can't repent apart from Christ. We can't have faith awakened within us apart from the power of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it is so easy for us to get that when it comes to the initial things of the Christian life because we're good uh, Protestant uh, Christians. And one thing that we, we understand is that faith is the gift of God. We understand that we can't believe, we can't repent, we can't be saved apart from Christ. But there is a temptation. There's part of us that, without really thinking about it consciously, can begin to assume that while we can't do the most fundamental things of the Christian life, the first things of the Christian life, we can't do that on our own. We can't do that apart from Christ. Somehow we can do the sophisticated things, the big things in the Christian life apart from Christ. Somehow we can have a Christian marriage apart from Christ, or we can have a Christian family. And I'm not saying we consciously say that. Of course not. Of course we don't. But it's just easy for us to begin to live in such a way that kind of has that working assumption that we know how to be married apart from Christ. We know how to have children apart from Christ. We know how to go to school apart from Christ. Or we know how to work, or have a vocation, have a career. We know how to interact in the world apart from Christ because we just kind of go along on this assumption. We have to remember what Jesus is telling us. He's speaking to each one of us. And he's speaking to the disciples as a whole. He's speaking to us as a church. When he says, look, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. Now, you know, it may seem like I'm over, oversimplifying things here. Uh, but, you know, Paul said to the Colossians, who, who had come under some teaching that... Um, that there was a secret knowledge and experience that was to be had through ecstatic type experiences and visions and that kind of stuff. That's what was going on in Colossae at the time. And so that there was this higher life and, and special life to be had within the Christian life through these uh, secret knowledge and these experiences. And so Paul is writing to them and, and he says to them, he says, I fear lest, like Eve was deceived in the garden, that your minds may be deceived and taken away from the simplicity that is in Christ. You know, this is another one of those paradoxes in the Bible. In one sense, the Christian life is utterly profound. It is deep without measure. And it is all-embracing. It uncovers all of life and all of the world. And so it is vast it is, it is intricate, it is complex, and it is profound. But there is another sense in which the Christian life is profoundly simple. Profoundly simple. 
It could include the thief on the cross who knew nothing more to say than to this fellow being crucified with him, Lord, Lord, remember me when you come in uh, your kingdom. It was a simple thing for him. And there's a sense in which we need not to lose that simplicity, and that's what Paul is saying. Paul, who had a vision of all the world coming under Christ, and all of culture flowering through the knowledge of Christ, said that it's important that our minds not be taken away from the simplicity that is in Christ. We need to remember, remember that among the complexity of the challenges of our individual lives, our family lives, our lives as a, as a church, the different challenges we make. We need to come back regularly to this simple statement, Christ. Christ, and as Christ told us, He's the vine. There's a simple abiding in Him that we need to remember. And so many times when we run into problems in different areas of our life, it's because we've forgotten the simplicity of life that is in Christ. So in this Christmas season, let us remember and renew our devotion to the center of the world, our devotion to the new temple, the place where God meets with man, and that is in Jesus himself. And as you celebrate the Advent season, let your lives, let the, let the um, aroma, as Paul would say, of your lives as you speak, as you relate as individuals and families, and as we come together as a church family, let us provide the proper context for the gospel, the truth that we affirm, which is that Jesus truly is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus really is God with us. God is with us. Let that aroma come out and set the context for the gospel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.